Today, we are talking to a dependency attorney who represents parents and special needs children. Join us today on Fostering the Future. Welcome to the Fostering the Future podcast, a show about all things child welfare, dependency, adoption, and foster care. Here are your hosts, veterans in the world of child welfare, Jack and Kat. that every human has incredible and equal value regardless of what side of the courtroom we sit on. We hope that everyone feels welcome and accepted here on Fostering the Future. Make sure you follow us on Facebook or Instagram as Fostering the Future Podcast, or check us out on our website at fosteringthefuturepodcast.org. Hello, my name is Boundary McAllister, and I'm so thankfully participating in the conversation today. Just wanted to let you know I'm talking in general terms. I am not giving legal advice. If you do need legal advice, please uh, consult an attorney of your choice. Nothing in this iPod broadcast that's stated by me uh, should be construed as any legal advice to any other person. Thank you. This is Jack, and I'm here with Kat, and today we have a very special guest in the Fostering the Future studio. We have Boundary McAllister, a parent attorney for dependency. And I have a very serious question to ask you. What is your favorite drink at Starbucks? That would be a um, cafe latte with two raw sugars, but a close second is the iced green tea matcha. We're both fans of the matcha. So matcha is yes. Interestingly, when my four-year-old was very little, probably too young to be drinking matcha, I would take him to Target and we would walk around and I would drink my iced matcha latte and he would steal most of it. You know, it's in the cards so he he still steals my drinks when we go to target he has a service dog now and the service dog is named matcha because She's that was like, his oh, favorite wonderful when he was little yeah. yeah so boundary can you tell me what your current position is and what that entails i'm a parent attorney and i serve in the tampa bay area circuits independency court and some in central florida so i'm court appointed to represent parent in dependency cases usually it's when the department of children and families takes either abuse neglected or abandoned children allegedly um, into their custody. Mm -hmm. In every one of those cases, if a parent presents themselves to the court, they're entitled. If they can't afford an attorney, if they're indigent, they're entitled to a court-appointed attorney. If they're not found to be indigent, they can, of course, hire their own private attorney to represent them. But I represent parents in that. And the way the system works is that there is a thing called the Office of Regional Counsel by state statute. If they don't have a conflict of interest, they take one of the parents in the case if they can, if they don't have a conflict. For the second parent, and sometimes there are several, several mm-hmm. dads in one case sometimes, mm-hmm. then if they have a conflict as to the second parent, and so then we're appointed usually to that second indigent parent. So is that how you end up being in other areas? Yes, we are contracted through the state uh, judicial administrative commission and we have to apply for each different circuit to be on their conflict parent registry list as well as their special needs attorney ad litem list. So there's a vetting 
uh, process. So each separate circuit has to approve us first, and then we have to execute a compensation package through the JAC, the Judicial Administrative Commission. Okay. When when you see a shelter hearing or you know a, a parent being assigned a new attorney, which I believe happens at shelter, is that correct? That's correct. Usually at shelter. So yes. usually I just see you know there's attorneys that are in the courtroom, and you know the judge will say, "Hey, so and so, can you take this case?" And they'll say, "Sure," but obviously. Obviously, there's a lot more that goes on behind that. Yeah, it just seems I keep thinking when when you were talking, I kept thinking, gosh, how do you organize your day? <laughs> like, There's a lot of pieces. And so I didn't realize you were would go out of county also. And then also sometimes you represent children, too. It seems like there's so many pieces to make sure align. There, there are. There are. Um, but it, it's good. And the. A lot of times you don't get very too much work from one particular circuit. So you really, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, and that I, I want to specialize in this area pretty pretty much all the time. So you need to be on at least two, three oh, different circuits. And it's funny that you say that. Cat, because I remember one time I was so overwhelmed because I had two kids who had hearings like almost back to back and one was um, on one side of the county and one was on the other. And it's like an hour and a half drive. And um, I was over there on the other side of the county and basically like ran to my car, raced across town to get to this next hearing, uh, walk in and there's the parent attorney that I had just seen on the other side of the oh county. And I'm like, oh my gosh, she has to do this too. And she's actually, you guys have a lot more to do than me just sitting there and observing so and I was so scattered to like try and make sure that I got to the next courthouse so I I didn't know that there was as much moving around as there clearly is there was and all of our judges are usually very generous if we do like say I've got a case in Newport Ritchie and Clearwater scheduled at the same time. They'll either delay one of those hearings or let us appear by phone. With the video virtual oh, hearings, yeah. it's been a blessing because I can have three laptops going. For us too, and, trust me, like especially because one of the hardest things as a foster parent is going to court and figuring out who's going to watch your kid when you go to court because they can't always go to court. Sometimes it's not appropriate for them to go to court. Right. And a lot of the times if you go to court with a small child, like that can be disturbing to the courtroom. And one particular judge that we had just spoke of is like bring all the babies like I don't care if they cry it's fine don't stress we'll have like the service dogs walk in and play with them like if I've had uh, kids crying or something she'll be like she'll stop the hearing and be like somebody uh, bring some snacks for the kid and some books and toys so most of the other judges that I've experienced like if a, if a baby starts fussing or whatever like you get you get some stern looks and you're <laughs> booking it but well that's so interesting when I when you said that you, this is what you wanted to specialize and it really makes me wonder what brought you to foster care? I just early in my career, I've been practicing over 34 years, but um, I got in when I practiced in North Carolina, I got on that quarter pointed list uh -huh. for parent attorneys then. Uh -huh. It's just very fulfilling knowing that you are helping children and parents get the services that they need, seeing families reunited or for parents who can't complete complete a case plan and are terminated that they that they get adopted into their forever home mm -hmm. um, as well as dealing with the the foster parents I always try to thank them in my hearings they're just such they're just such a blessing mm -hmm. to these children and uh, we all appreciate that everybody in the system we've got all these people together who care about these children and it's just very satisfying just all around so and dealing with the other professionals too you know who are you know wonderful at getting these 
these children where they need to be. So I, I really enjoyed it. When I first started practicing and continued to do that in North Carolina, then I got busy with some bankruptcy work before I moved to Florida. So when I came down here um, and took the bar exam in that early 2008, I, I really didn't want to have to open my own practice again and just wanted to focus on quarter-pointed work and got back into that immediately and have enjoyed it down here. So it's kind of the, I guess I'll retire maybe in five or six years. So it's been wonderful throughout the years. Really, it's, it's just a very pleasurable practice. The stakeholders overall are good to work with and any. Anytime that you're dealing with helping children, I think it's satisfying. So, yeah. Yeah, it's one of the things that we've, we've, a lot of people on our podcast have said, and it's something I 100% believe to be true is while the system may be broken, there's so many people that are so compassionate. This isn't, um, easy work. This isn't, um, very good. You know, this is not something that you can just roll through. Nobody's making a lot of money in this. You know, if you're doing this and continuing to do this, you have a passion to help people while the system may be broken. So many of the people involved are so just give me so much hope. Very definitely. And especially in the area in which we love. What drove your decision to become an attorney? Wanted to help people. My stepfather was an attorney for many years uh, and I grew up under him. I was kind of like the scout in To Kill a Mockingbird. I'd go down there and watch him try criminal cases, Uh personal injury cases, and always worked, you know, was a clerk in his law firm and um, just saw that the ability to help people and be a hero every chance you get. That was his motto. It's a little disheartening, you know, when you go to the, when I took the bar down here in uh, early 2008, and then you have to go to a mandatory new Florida attorney thing. A lot of the attorneys, you know, because they said, why, why did you want to become an attorney? And a lot of them, you know, it wasn't to help people to make money, different things, but, you know, at least they were being honest. But I think you really, at your core, you know, want to genuinely help people and be of assistance to them. That's very rewarding, especially within a family. What kind of formal education was required of you to, to start working as attorney ad litem? Um, well, of course, you have to have an undergraduate for your undergraduate degree and then have a law degree and then you have to be licensed in the state of Florida to do that. What was great about the attorney ad litem program, which that just started, came into statute oh, about seven years ago. And it was great to be in on the ground level for that. So mm-hmm. anyway, you have to submit an application to the circuits that, that you want to uh, serve as a special needs attorney ad litem. You know, they're looking for involvement in the dependency system um, and other relevant um education or background. And I've also had years of practicing um, in guardianship and guardian advocacy mm-hmm. uh, work. Guardian advocacy work involves a lot of children mm-hmm. with, with special needs. So I had that background okay. as well. So that was the general, that was the general require, requirement going into that. So can I just ask you, um, because this is something that I see asked so many times in foster parent groups on social media is what what qualifies a kid to receive an attorney ad litem? So we say it's a child with special needs, but I've seen such a spectrum of like a child who has ADHD receives an attorney ad litem, but then also children with severe medical needs has an attorney ad litem. What is it that would qualify a child? They need more advocacy um, in the courtroom. What's great about that is any 
friend of the court or interested party who is appearing at the proceeding can always interrupt and ask the judge to consider appointing this child um, who has a criteria, you know, under the statute to be appointed an attorney ad litem, um, a special needs attorney ad litem. Um, also, uh, some of us serve as if they do, if the child does not qualify under the statutory criteria for special needs attorney ad litem, uh, some of us will volunteer pro bono. And it, like you said, if, with a child with extensive needs, even though they may not technically qualify to serve for those children, That's like say severe sexual abuse or something like that. Um, but anyway, as far as them being um, qualified for an attorney ad litem under the statute where the judge has authority to appoint an attorney ad litem and that attorney ad litem will be paid for it. The special needs attorney ad litem under statute will be appointed when the child resides in a skilled nursing facility or is being considered for placement in a skilled nursing facility or is prescribed psychotropic medication but declines assent to the psychotropic medication, has a diagnosis of a developmental disability under statute 393.063, or is being placed in a residential treatment center or being considered for placement in a residential treatment center, or is a victim of human trafficking. So those are the criteria for that child. That's a lot broader than I realized. Yeah. What I see the most is the psychotropic medication, you know, because there are very serious considerations and reviews of a child on psychotropic medication and, and a lot of the developmentally disabled children. And it's important, you know, there again, when they're considered for that residential treatment center, what we used to call a SIP placement, an inpatient psychiatric placement. If the child is objecting to that, it's real important to have that attorney ad litem advocate for that. Them and represent them in that hearing because mm-hmm. that's a very restrictive of their yeah. of their rights. Of course, going inpatient, yeah, in an involuntary program for for a substantial period of time. Oh, and then on the psychotropic medication. As far as that assent goes, them being able to consent to the medications, from what I've seen, the judges consider if they're, say, under 12 or so, the court deems them not to be able to give informed consent to that medication, even if their parents and everybody else consent. So they'll go ahead and appoint an attorney ad litem. If they're like teen, older teenagers and they're consenting to it and the parents are consenting, if they haven't been, if their rights haven't been turning, they usually won't appoint attorney at light. Okay, now, that so. makes sense. So, how do you get assigned to a parent? The attorneys on the parent representation registry list um, at shelter hearings, they usually um, will either have shelter duty one week out of a couple of months. Does shelter duty mean you come to the shelter hearings? Right. And we're the attorneys there to get appointed to the cases that the Office of Regional Conflict has. So there's a schedule for the people in this pool to come accept shelter hearing appointments. Yes. And to make a long story short, they're supposed to rotate. So like say in one county, we go usually one day a month for the shelter duty. In in another circuit, we'll go once every two months and have shelter duty for a week. And then when parents are appointed, not 
not during shelter, they usually have that registry list in front of them and they just go to, they rotate down to be fair to all the attorneys to give them the appointment. Now, when you um, are handed a case in this, in these situations, do you have any of the background information or is it just, this is the names, will you take the case? All the courts are very good to go to either, you know, hand us in person facts or email to us the shelter petition. So we have that information. We have, we can find out before the hearing from the regional council attorney, which which parent they're going to be conflicting off on. So that gives us a chance to review the shelter petition, reach out to our client, talk with them, and and see uh, what their position is to the shelter. So they can either not object to the shelter or they can contest the probable cause to the shelter petition and have a brief shelter hearing. When you're assigned a case, do you have the opportunity to turn it down if you're not comfortable representing the client. If we're that uncomfortable and feel like we cannot fully advocate for this parent, we would have the chance to tell uh-huh. the judge due to, you know, a legal ethical conflict of interest that we're declining appointment. And I think most of them would go ahead and grant our motion, okay. you know, not to take that case if we felt that strongly. But but I think with the attorneys, with our training and all and understanding that every client is entitled to under the, under the Constitution, the the best advocate for them, even though this may not be a popular client or they may have allegedly done something terribly wrong, we understand they're entitled to good the best representation mm-hmm. that an attorney can give them, and knowing sure. that we go we go forward with that. Of course. So. Okay. Yeah, that's for me. I can't. That's got to be the hardest part of the job. Sometimes that's such an honorable thing to be able to look past some something somebody did and look at them as a human and defend them. So it sounds like that doesn't happen very often. Often, based on the way that you answered that, that most of the time when a parent attorney is assigned a case, they take it. Right. Because we, we really understand they're entitled to due process and represent representation at every you know stage of the proceeding. I think as we talked about earlier, there may be a personality conflict. And that's when you see, you know, the attorneys withdrawing from representation. As far okay. as, we call it irreconcilable differences. I've only seen that happen once with one of my kids' parents. There was a new attorney almost every time because of the um, way in which this parent communicated and uh, acted, behaved around people. So let's say you have a client and they're about to reunify. For whatever reason, you know this kid is not going to be safe in this home. I think that's something sometimes that foster parents struggle with. Like if you see a kid's going home and you know that it's still unsafe, all these people are clearly aware that it's not safe, but it continues anyways. From your role, is there anything you can do or you just keep fighting to get that reunification? The short answer is I just keep fighting to get that reunification and just try to counsel my client if I'm aware of the issue of how to remedy that that safety issue. And I work closely with them. Of course, I care about children as well. So mm-hmm. if I feel like there is something that could be unsafe, I want to remedy that as well What in my attorney-client relationship with my client. Usually those things are picked up on. We as the, the parent attorney, you know, our job is to, you know, seek reunification without any dishonest information provided to the court. Usually if there are other concerns, the other parties, guardian ad litem, foster parents, therapists, which is why the court relies so heavily on, on these child therapists, they have a duty to look into that. And that's you that is usually vetted out in the, in that side on that side of it. Yeah. Okay. Like, so it's not your role to be Yeah, no, it's not other. my role. And it would be really against my role. 
Yeah, but you would call the hotline if you suspected abuse or neglect. So, of course, if yeah. we are still under a duty to yeah, disclose, you know, child abuse. Okay, what is your responsibility to the parent? To uh, be a good advocate for them. Sometimes I feel like a cheerleader with them, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm fine to do it. Um, I've also been called a, a closet social worker because I love that <laughs> aspect in working with them as being like a secondary mm-hmm. social worker with them. Basically, in the cases of if the children are sheltered, after that, the CLS, the Children's Legal Services Attorney or State Attorney, will be filing what's called a dependency petition against them, and they're arraigned on that. Um, they can ask for a trial if they want to deny the petition allegations. Mm-hmm. Most of them enter a consent to work a case plan to, tr- mm-hmm. to try to get reunification with their children. Or if they lose at trial, then the judge will enter a court-ordered case plan. So, as y'all probably know, uh, the basis for children children to be returned is that the conditions for return have been met and that the safety and welfare of the child um, is safeguarded if the child's returned. Um, also, the court is looking at has this parent, you know, substantially completed their case plan task and have there been behavioral changes based mm-hmm. on that? There are always issues with the visitation as well. and um, They may feel like everybody's against them. And, and, you know, a lot of times we're dealing with substance abuse issues of parents, mental health, domestic violence, learning disabilities even of the parents, staying in contact with them uh, and seeing if they have any barriers to treatment that we can help them with, barriers to visitation, if we can make that better. So a lot of it is going back to court and going through their specific case plan task, helping them get the referrals that they need because with these case managers, they're having a lot of turnover, as you know. And sometimes it's very hard to get the funding or even the referrals from the court system. So um, just working on those issues. So that's pretty much it to hopefully get them to reuse. So you had mentioned that you sometimes are kind of like a social worker to the parents. What are the types of things that you're able to do? A good bit of that is... You know, I mean, if they drop out of one drug treatment program or fail some drug screens, they just feel hopeless and and they shouldn't, you know, relapse is part of addiction. So it's just a matter of picking themselves up, getting the judge. Let's try a new provider. Maybe that's let's try a new um, form of treatment, you know, Suboxone, maybe methadone. Um, Let's do something like that. Let's get a referral to, you know, someone else you might have a better rapport with and may have a a treatment program more tailored to your needs or that can be of help to you. So just keeping them focused on moving forward because I think they feel like they feel we're on their side. And sometimes when it's coming from the case manager or the guardian ad litem, they kind of feel like these people are against me. So encouragement from us may mean more than encouragement from the other party. Yeah, I think that's true. I feel like about once a year I run across a case or I have a case or someone that I work with and I think, oh my gosh, this is going to be my career ender. (laughs) Like something that's really really hard to read and really hard to look at and really hard to deal with. And, but we just keep moving on. Have you had any situations like that? Have you had situations where it's hard to represent parents who've done really bad things to kids? Yes, it can be, it can be hard for us. And it's just a matter of, of processing 
those things with the parents, um, because what that will usually mean is that if it's that bad, like let's say extreme unexplained physical injuries, that parent is probably looking at what's called an upfront expedited termination of parental rights. Mm-hmm. So dealing, you know, those those are very serious issues or extreme sexual abuse by a parent. They're usually that parent is usually looking at an expedited termination of parental rights. Our job is just a process. You know, pros and cons with the parent. If they do want it, if they if they do want a trial, we have to be very sure to get the best experts we can. If we've got a good faith basis mm-hmm. for a defense to those particular issues, we've got to get those experts lined up. If, if you know, and vet them to see if there is any defense. And that depends, of course, what our client tells us, what they're saying, what their version of the story is. Mm-hmm. You know, and then we also need to counsel them. Um, usually, the um, the state attorney or children's legal services attorney in a very serious case will take what's called a voluntary surrender of parental rights from a parent and going through that option with them. And um, one of the good things about that is that is not an admission as to anything in a termination of parental rights petition. And if they are terminated that way, as opposed to um the trial judge terminating them after trial, that will not be any future ground for termination of parental rights of a sibling or any other afterborn child. And a lot of times we're dealing with young parents, so that's something to consider. And then some of those parents may also have uh, pending criminal charges as well. So that's a big decision with them. If, say, you're dependency trial or termination of rights trial is scheduled, is heard before the criminal case is heard. You know, they have their Fifth Amendment right not to testify. Do they want to testify? You know, so there's just a host of issues we have to review with them. One of the things I think that has surprised me the most is how rarely criminal charges are filed against parents who um, have their children removed for things that you would think for what you would think criminal charges would be filed for. Is that something that you've also seen or? I agree with you 100%. It's just amazing that more criminal charges, and I know that side of it, they're very busy with everything, and maybe they think the dependency court can deal with that. But I have been so surprised. I was sitting in one shelter hearing, and I was representing another parent, and there was a uh, a new shelter came in with allegations against a natural father um, that he had sexually abused um, his daughter repeatedly for years. And what I was thinking to myself as a normal person, the parent showed up at the shelter hearing and I was sitting there and I was like waiting for law enforcement to come in and and arrest him right there. Mm -hmm. Didn't happen, didn't get an address for that parent. And after the shelter hearing, he just got up, left, and went back to wherever he was. And I was really surprised at that. Just all I can say is uh, for caregivers and things like that to reach out to law enforcement. In these cases, and even um, when I represent wards, incapacitated folks in guardian advocacy and guardianship, and I'm reporting abuse to law enforcement, I've gotten the same thing. I've had severely... Um, neglected and abused elderly people or children in special needs in those guardian advocacy cases. And it's just my experience. I can't get much traction there at all either, which now I will say um, I have seen recently recently 
just in my personal experience that I have a few parents that have been charged criminally. So I don't I don't know. That may be an upward trend. It may have been something that has been overlooked. So that trend may may continue. Um, What has been your greatest win? When I practiced dependency law for parents in North Carolina, I had a pretty high profile case where I represented um, an African-American father who had been released from uh, prison seeking custody through dependency court of his daughter. Maybe she was six at that time. It, it's pretty, it was pretty much a small county. Anyway, uh, in my view, he had um, finished all his case plan tasks, showed behavioral change, had a great bond, loving relationship with his daughter. And there was just really no reason not for him to be reunified. And I felt like he's, he's not getting a fair shake. So we had to take it to trial. So we won and case management and garden ad I've got a thrashing from the judge. The judge went on. Everyone was in tears in the courtroom. The judge went on for 45 minutes with these unfound accusations against him, one of which was he must still be dealing drugs because he has a cell phone. Oh, my god! And so the judge got up and he said, I want everyone in this courtroom to know I have two <laughs> cell phones. <laughs> and I'm not dealing I drugs. I mean, there was just a complete lack of evidence. And, you know, this is a case we get into. The, this child had been in foster care for a pretty long time. The foster parents were very emotionally attached to the child, wanted to adopt the child. So they were just stretching everything they could think of to try to get this child not to be reunified. So when that happened and the paper came in, that was a real big case. Um, so because the judge indicated in his findings that um, it was very interesting that the case management had not made reasonable efforts. It was racial discrimination and they were racial and they were motivated against him based on racial lines. So um, that that was a that was a real big case. That's a really big win. Yeah, that's yeah. a really big win. And you don't see that that much because usually, you know, they have a good faith basis to, to do things. And another thing recently that gave me a lot of pride was as a special needs attorney at Lyon, I got to go testify for a teenage girl who had been a victim of human trafficking for years, and we got to confront. Um, uh, the perpetrator and make an wow. impact statement to the court and to see that judge give him the maximum time. And there were also, it was a big syndicate. There were also mm-hmm. many other girls involved in this human oh trafficking gosh. scheme. And we got to see that federal judge throw the book at him. That, when I left and that judge had done that, I said, I can sleep well at night. I mean, this federal judge just don't mess around. Oh, this is very true. (laughs) (laughs) And it was very interesting in that case because um, I was not totally aware of this, but they're pretty liberal restitution statutes for these victims of human trafficking. When when a perpetrator gets federally convicted, um, you can even go after their assets and things. And this particular wow. perpetrator had made millions of dollars off of oh my goodness. trafficking these young ladies. So um, I was able to file a restitution claim Good. for my attorney at the item. That's amazing. So, that's amazing because that's definitely not something that you see yeah. in our line of work, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, that, and that was something out of the that I don't yeah. get to do every day. So, so that was very um, that was very satisfying. And then, you know, for me, it's very interesting with these parents because I'll get appointed, and I will talk with them, and then I'm thinking in my head, 
there is no way that this person's going to be. I, I just don't see them getting reunited. I don't think that they have the discipline to get this stuff done or something else is going on. Um, and then I'll see someone else and I'll be like, this is going to be a slam dunk. This person's on the ball. I really think they're going to do everything in a timely manner. Mm-hmm. And things don't end up that way. Like I had a very, and what's really sad about a lot of my parents, you know, they're they're like, I want to get my child out of foster care because I grew up in foster care myself. So, I mean, they've already had that trauma as a child themselves. And it's just a cycle, you know, that continues, which is very sad. But but another great victory was, um, well, and I've had two, two mothers, moderately low functioning, and um, had a lot of other issues. But, buddy, they stepped up to the plate and they overcame that and they got all their stuff done and they had ways to cope. Like one of my low functioning um, parents kept everything in a journal and she was the most organized thing I've ever seen. Wow. And, and that was and when I met her, when I had my first consult with her, I was like, she is never going to make it. So it's it's surprising. It goes both ways. So it surprises you. Yeah. So, so you told us about some of your greatest wins. Can you tell us about some of your worst days or one of your hardest days? The hardest days as the attorney at Lynham are when these teenagers are on the run and you know it's unsafe for them. You Mm -hmm. don't know where they are. Um, You know it's very dangerous for them. And those are your, and I, I, I think I'm speaking for the other attorney at Lynham. Those are your sleepless days, sleepless nights, and you really worry about these children. Mm-hmm. Um, especially the ones that you know are very susceptible to, to become again or become for the first time victims of human trafficking yeah. because you just you just don't know and they're very vulnerable, can be exploited. It's just it's really sad. So all you can do at that point is just ask for as many staffings as possible for the diligent search. Uh, put the be on the lookout where you think that they may be. Um, it's it's just like uh, you just have to do a lot of detective work. Reach out to all the all of the law enforcement officers in the area where you think that they may be. Mm-hmm. Um, Miami Dade County they have a whole section devoted to you know children of human wow. trafficking. So I always alert them when I think that they might be in the yeah. Miami area which a lot of the victim, victims of human trafficking end, end up there. Well, of, I'll tell you, I had um, I had a placement. I've never had a placement really run away from me. I have definitely had some placements that have tried to run. Maybe they hid in my front yard or right outside my front door, but I've never had one um, really run. And, and as an attorney in Lightham, we're different than the guardian at Lightham, the guardian at Lightham attorney in the case. They're for the best interest of the child. But as attorney and Lydon, we also have to advocate for the express wishes of the child, even though it may not necessarily be in their best interest. So interesting. So yeah. guardian ad litem is uh, manifest best interest is guardian right. ad litem. But also they're supposed to advocate for what the child wants. But you guys are fully what the child wants. That's your focus. You're that voice for the child. Exactly. Um, who who are the people you interact with the most? Obviously, the judge and the biological parents. Are there other parts of the equation that um, you have a lot of collaboration and involvement with? Oh, yes. I would say equally with the um, Children's Legal Services or um, state attorney on the case. That would be the attorney for DCF. I deal a lot with them. The assistant state attorney, right? Right. The assistant state attorney assigned to the case with the guardian ad litem. As parent attorneys, I have to go through the guardian ad litem attorney. If I'm attorney ad litem, I can also collaborate with the guardian ad litem volunteers. 
and case managers. And on the attorney ad litem um, cases, I collaborate, oh, just a ton with my wonderful foster parents. Because mm-hmm. one, another thing I do as attorney ad litem is make sure that those children with those special needs are getting all the community resources that they're entitled to. Okay. And of course, the foster parents, especially with the younger children, uh-huh. is the gateway to that. Uh-huh. And they're just, I've become very, feel like I've become very close and bonded with a lot of the foster parents in my attorney ad litem cases. That's so nice to hear. So, and I even had, and, and sometimes it's interesting when I represent a parent that let's say I'm trying to get a change of custody say over to a maternal grandparent I had one set of foster parents that actually came to the hearing and support of the motion for, for change of placement from them over to a maternal grandmother and we were just all in tears at the Aww. end of that because it was unusual to have the foster Aww. parents come yeah, because they had observed the grandmother so much with the child mm-hmm. and and so anyway that was that was a heartwarming scene that you usually that you usually don't see it. but and then there, there are just so many wonderful foster parents but you do I've seen this over the years it doesn't happen that often of, of course these foster parents they get a attached and bonded to these children then if they don't want to let them go and they want to adopt them sometimes I'm, I have to make the argument that that foster parent is just basically causing undue interference or sabotaging what I call sabotaging the reunification really with, without basis and, and it's usually very transparent to the judges because they can see through that if they see a foster parent that as a prospective adoptive placement and but it is sad to see but that's a good problem to have when I've got parents ready for reunification and I know that there's per, you know an alternative placement out there those are usually good problems to have mm-hmm. or when I have stakeholders presenting possible good placements for a child I yeah. have, but I have seen foster parents just heartbroken when the parents turn it around at the end and the judge reunifies it's just sad it's a sad situation in the situations where maybe the judge isn't necessarily seeing the interference of the foster parent what can be done well that's where the parents attorneys come in and we have to we have to present that and cross-examine and present witnesses witnesses that have been, been the boots on the grounds with the parents to say this is really not this is an allegation but we've got professional witnesses to say the opposite to what the foster mm-hmm. parent and then if the foster parent's the only one who's saying that without any corroboration the judge is going to consider that so the, the judges the judges see it and sometimes I think to myself I really appreciate so much these foster parents but just remember your license and your agreement when you go into it just to know that this can happen because I'm sure it would be heartbreaking and foster parenting isn't about adopting it's about reunifying and helping families get back together and right, I think that's the first priority sometimes yes foster parents listen I love all of my kids I sometimes especially love when they go home and when their parents fight hard for them one of the things I always tell new foster parents when they're worried about what that sadness is going to feel like is that unfortunately many less kids reunify than you would think and when they're able to reunify we've got to celebrate those and when people are able to make actual change in their mm-hmm. life to um, make a safe home for their kids gosh the the emotion of that and and pride for that parent and excitement for that kid to be able to keep their family intact so far overrides any sadness that I feel mm-hmm. for myself um, in the loss of that child especially because if you um, have a good relationship with their biological parents you can 
can still maintain a relationship. My Correct. my girls that reunified um, three months ago, I mean, they were here for a couple of days last week and, uh, you know, we had sleepover and, you know, we get to see them all the time. They FaceTime me um, almost every day. I get a text message mm-hmm. and, you know, I have a very close relationship with them and, uh, and that is possible. And obviously even as much as you can do as a foster parent, sometimes that's just not possible um, because of the position that the parents are in sometimes that they just, um, you know, they're not able, like they're doing what they can do and they're not able to recognize you as someone who could be a support or maybe they feel um, threatened right. or um, or that you judge them. I think that's something that we hear a lot is they feel like the foster parents are judging them or that the partners are judging them. And I, I hope that's not ever the case, but certainly, you know, I, I just want, I want them to get their kids back, you know? That's yeah. right. And, and we, yeah, as parent attorneys, we, we really appreciate that attitude, but I, I know it's tough. And a lot of them, it's that the the parents are terminated, and those we you know we celebrate the the adoptions after that happens. So, so what are your interactions like with um, the other attorneys on the case? Like, if you have one parent and another attorney has the other parent, do you guys collaborate together? Do you communicate? We do, and more so when they're together. And really, dependency court is supposed to be a remediation rehabilitation court, but sometimes that crosses over into like a family court custody case. <laughs> yeah. We just have so many issues in dependency court we don't have time for. Sometimes I end up, end up in two, three-day hearings. I represent one parent. The parents are no longer together, and I'm representing one parent against the other. And this is such an interesting um facet of this independency court. A, a lot of times I'll be um, appointed to what's called a non-offending parent who wasn't the basis for removal. They're in a different household, so they had nothing to do with why the the child Uh was removed. So I'll have that non-offending parent that will immediately get placement of the child. It'll be sheltered from the other parent. The non-offending parent gets placement. And say that can go on for one, two, three years. They've never done anything wrong. They usually will keep the child if the other parent never complies with their case plan or or makes the conditions Uh for return. But if the other parent you know, who may have, you know, really pretty severe issues if they complete all their case plan tasks and show the behavioral change and have an approved home study at that point. There's case law that says the judge is supposed to put the child back to the placement where it was before the shelter. So it's going to go back against that. It's going to go back with that offending parent. And it's so hard for my non-offending parents to understand that this is the law. But the judge can look, also consider best interests as well. But pretty much they're bound. I just just had a hearing on this. There was no controversy. I represented a non-offending parent, but the judge's hands were tied because Garden had lied on DCF, said the child should go back with the mother. I explained this to my dad even before the hearing, you know, and it, you know that's hard to understand. Mm-hmm. You've stepped up to the plate. You've been there. You, you don't have any case fantastic. You've never done anything wrong, mm-hmm. but just explaining this is how the system works. So, Wow, that's got to be so hard. It's not something that I ever knew. I only had one situation with a non-offending parent, and I was so proud of this guy. He um, had never had a kid before. His child was born to... Um, this woman and um, she had a new boyfriend and there were some um, situations in the house that led to this child's removal. Uh, He came to me um, 
gosh, really young, very young. Little, like, little, little. Yeah, like a few months old. And um, this dad stepped up to the plate in a way that I have rarely seen in dependency. Before his arraignment, he had completed all of his case plan. Wow. So oh he gosh, basically, he was on the ball and he has a job, he has a house. The mother of his child was not allowing him to have the child because she had a new boyfriend and she wanted to be with him with the baby. When the child was removed from her, I had this baby for such a, I've never seen a case go this way. What was it like two or three months? And he was home with his dad. Um, he was a non-offending party. He wasn't anywhere near the situation when it happened. He reached out to case management and was like, I will do anything for my son. You tell me what I need to do and I will do it ASAP. They told him the classes that he would likely be assigned when he got his case plan. He had them all. Everything was done before he even got a case plan. He, he sent all the paperwork before they even asked for it. His son is still with him. So I'm assuming uh, the mother just didn't finish the case plan. But we had discussed earlier when sometimes parents have criminal charges and obviously that doesn't happen a lot. But when that does happen, is there any collaboration between you if you're the parent attorney and their attorney that they're assigned in the criminal trial? Oh, no, we actually do collaborate with them often. Um, with their public defenders or their private um, criminal defense attorney, of course, we can really help each other out because a lot of times the defenses may overlap or be at the same in both cases and and talking about testifying and one action versus the other and how that can affect the the other because if they testify on one of those, that's probably going to be used in the other proceeding if it goes to trial. So yeah, there's a lot of collaboration. Okay, so what are some basic things that biological parents can do to work better with you so that you can be more effective as their attorney? Just to CC me on everything that they're doing as well as the case manager. Even though, like say, they're on their case plan task, they technically only have to provide it to the case manager. But sometimes they'll do that and they don't let us know that they've done that. So just to give, you know, keep us up to date with communication and documentation of things that they're doing or lack thereof. So we'll know we, we need to help them get the referrals to do this or get mm-hmm. an updated referral or a new referral. Just, just if they can have better communication with us, you know, we are busy, but really the more they bother me and the more I bother them, the better chances there, there, there is of reunification. Yeah. And I will add to that, that a lot of the times their case managers will change and sometimes without any of us knowing. So if they're only sending things to their case manager and not copying you in, they might send something and then you get to court and the judge is saying, oh, I don't have this. And the case manager is doesn't have it accessible or it was sent to a previous case manager. But if you have it, yeah, no, court, and then a then lot, you can always. Yeah. With that turnover, they're losing things or things are getting lost in their system. If mm-hmm. I receive it and I file it with the court, it's there. No question. That's the end of it. Mm-hmm. You know, We know they've done it. We, we've got it all. And the more I file in the case, that'll take those possible issues out of it so well it's interesting that you say uh the more they bother you because i do have one parent and uh that i have a very close relationship with and she's always um she feels like the first attorney that she had doesn't like her because she called her too much (laughs) and uh, to be fair i totally believe that she would say that well to be fair to be fair when she started she was an using addict and i know that at that time her behaviors were very different than they are now the way that she handled things were very different from how they are now, yes. as you can 
imagine when things weren't going her way, she would get mad and she would just call people. So the first attorney she has, she's like, she stopped taking her calls, basically. And the only time she would ever see her or talk to her was in court. So um, she feels like her behavior when she was still using affected her relationship with her attorney in that way. And now she has a new attorney. And while her behavior is different, that she's like, I don't want to have the same situation I had with the previous attorney where he doesn't like me because I call too much. But this is kind of an urgent situation that like we need to get addressed. And uh, I need to make sure also that he's aware of it. Well, I know who you're talking about. And it's very much like her to be like that considerate and think of other people in that way. And so that's why I was saying I totally can see her doing that. Oh, and and I don't want to. They, they never bother me. And, and maybe I shouldn't have used that term. But um, yeah, I mean, some some of the parents can call you excessively. And it depends on to where they are in their substance abuse treatment. And I know that in dealing with these people. I, you know, I know what's going on. So I know that that may be a result of or, or while mm-hmm. they're going through some of those issues. Yeah. Um, and then, a, you know, a lot of the clients don't have... Um, Boundaries. boundaries. That's thank you. Only a therapist could say that. Anyway, yeah, they have no bound. They have no boundaries. Some of them, and or it's hard for them to deal with those. You know, if I feel like they're just calling me too much about not important thing, I can you know try to say you know unless it's really an emergency or important, and I'll uh-huh. take the call or the text at any time. Just try to limit it to maybe a couple of times a week or once a week to have a conversation uh-huh. with them. Um, but and I like them having my cell phone and being able to text me oh, wow. and the email. I know a lot of attorneys are like, no way you're ever going to give. Well, because of my special needs kids too, I want them to be able to get a hold of me at any time and my and my parents too, uh, because I love it because I can get a text or email and if I'm in another hearing I can just respond without having to interrupt that and get on the call that sort of thing if, if I'm in court or during mm-hmm. a, or doing a virtual hearing so well, I will nice. say that I think that that's pretty extraordinary compared to the experiences that I've seen most with most of um, my kids parents yeah and there some are very good and very pointed and just say and you can just answer with the yes or no and that's all they really wanted to know that particular mm-hmm. day so I find it great you know I find it, it really helpful. texts are a beautiful thing they I just, are especially for, for someone like you who's in the courtroom so much and, and case managers a lot of the time too when they're in courtroom all day they can't take phone calls and it's not you know it's so easy for somebody to just get a concise little message to their phone and be able to respond at your you know at your availability rather than feeling like because someone's on the phone right now I have to address this right now right and the ones that I feel like abuse the texting um I, I just tell them I'm not going to receive any more tags from them if it's okay. Counter, if it's counterproductive and they can they can email me or talk to me on the phone. So what have you seen to be the biggest challenges in your interactions with parents? I'm the type of attorney. I tell them this. I've been practicing too many years. I want to be honest with them. I tell them like it is. And a lot of times they don't like to hear that. And I don't sugarcoat things maybe as well as I should. Sometimes they don't like that or they take offense to that. And they possibly want to blame everybody else. And I'm trying to empower empower them. But but I just have a, I don't have a rapport and I've just got a personality, personality conflict with, with them. That's, that's the hardest thing to deal. And if they become accusatory to me um, in, a, in a threatening way, I under the bar rules have to withdraw. Right. So that's, but I don't find that that happens very often, maybe 
one out of 50 cases, one out of 60, I have that, that kind of situation. Or if, say, they're one of the, um, they're a, I don't know if y'all, y'all are familiar with sovereign citizenship, sovereign uh-huh. citizens. Yes. yes. And I can't under the bar rules, um, make those arguments for them in court. So, you know, I had to withdraw from a case and the parent ended up representing themselves. But I've got to have a good faith basis to make arguments, you know, and just sometimes there are situations like that 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 just don't work out well. Um, And I just really have a get real conversation with them. But I think that's important. And many of them probably don't have someone in their life to do that for them. Right. And even though that might seem um, like you're coming at them in a negative way, you're actually like you're almost parenting them for all these parents who haven't been parented. That's true. That's true. That's true. And um, it works with a lot of them that what I call tough love type situation (laughs) and parenting them to get them to where they need to be. Um, And then there's some parents that just want to blame everybody else, including their attorney. So, so those, and it doesn't happen that much. Um, so that's, that's about the worst part of my job. In, in my experience as a foster parent, what I have found is that the parents who are going to be successful, and sometimes you, they're going to get reunified anyways, but the parents that are going to have successful reunifications are the ones that take ownership of what they did wrong. Mm-hmm. Yes. So most kid parents will come in right off the bat saying they took my kids. I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. Um, and then start to recognize, you know, what, what it, what it was they did to put them in this situation. But the ones that I have had reunified that are successful are the ones where the parents are like, this was my doing. I've got to fix it. I created circumstances where my kids weren't safe and I can't blame anybody but myself. And those are the ones that I find to be really successful. The ones that are constantly, even if it's like not in the direct uh, issue that we're discussing are constantly looking to put the ownership of the mistakes on someone else. Those are the ones where the kids are either just in care for years and years and years, or they end up being terminated. Have you seen that? Yes. You, you hit the nail on the head. It's the accountability responsibility a true understanding and reflection on what got them to that place. Um, yeah, that, that makes a huge difference in my reunification and the, the successful ongoing long-term ones have, have been part of that. Yeah, been, that's been a big part of it. So, and the, you know, it, a lot of times it depends on their rapport with their case manager and other family member support, even the support, like you said, of the foster parents sometimes if they're supporting them and, I, I think that's life. an important role um, for us as foster parents when we're able to, because we're with their kid all the time and when we're able to have a good relationship with them. Like, I, I feel like it really uh, can be a positive thing for everybody. Um, can you give me one word that you think people would use to describe a parent attorney independency? I would say the underdog advocate. I know that's two words, but the underdog. I like that. Because we're we're representing like the most a lot of times the most unpopular party in the case. And sometimes if it's a really bad situation, I'll be talking to other stakeholders. And it's funny because they will associiate me with that parent's actions. So I was going to say villain because sometimes we are vilified, but it's just psychological in that um 
I kind of feel like we're we're the bad guy as well, and any arguments we make aren't with merit because we're representing the bad person in this case. If that makes any sense, dynamic. so we get we have a negative connotation mm-hmm. a lot of times, like a criminal defense attorney, just like a criminal like defense yeah, attorney. That's so interesting. Um, I feel bad for the parent attorney a lot of the times when I'm in the courtroom, and I think that's why because I feel like they're having to fight for something that you know that they're not responsible for. And also sometimes I'm in a courtroom and I see the parent attorney and I think, oh my gosh, this is so hard to defend this situation. And like, sometimes you can just even see it on the face, like the look of the coming defeat that they're about to receive. I've had situations where they're like, I've reached out to them this many times. I've never met them before. Yes, they've been arrested again. And, you know, like to have to like stand before a judge and be held accountable for things that were not your actions. I don't know. I, I feel feel sympathy sometimes for the for the parent attorney like obviously that's your job and it's like it's what you've chosen to do is to be that voice for these people in this situation but I think when you said underdog advocate that that really rang true for me because that's kind of how I've most of the time viewed and sometimes like I, I mean I will say that there are some cases where I'm like oh man that parent attorney is ripping everyone a new one like they are owning this courtroom and maybe they shouldn't be because like maybe this uh, parent should be held accountable a little more but what do you see in the big picture of child welfare what is the role of the parent attorney to advocate for the parents um, for reunification or to keep children in their placement with the parents. And and a lot of people lose sight of Chapter 39. The whole intent and purpose and background behind it is to the goal should be for all parents, as long as they're not terminated and offered a case plan, to reunify the family, to, re, to reunify parents with children. And I know I was talking to some other attorneys and they have in some of the circuits, they'll have an adoption celebration day. And we often feel like in some of the circuits, they're having reunification celebration days as well. We, yeah. we need to celebrate that as well. So what would surprise most people to learn about your role? Things can be a lot of things can be resolved um, with a soft landing and that can be in the best interest of the children as well. So that doesn't happen always. You know, we're in, mm-hmm. we're in trial a good bit or we have contested hearings a lot, but we can get a lot. We can get a lot done through other methods. What do you want foster parents to know about parent attorneys? We have constitutionally taken an oath to represent these parents and their positions to the best of our abilities. If they will, please keep that in mind. They may have a totally different viewpoint than, than us and arguments that, that we um, constitutionally have to make in, in court for our clients. Um, and that's just our role. That's just what we do. So please don't take offense to it. And I think underlying all of that, and I would be speaking for every parent attorney I know, they certainly appreciate um, the foster parents in the system, the, the fact that we need more foster licensed foster parents, therapeutic foster parents, and we appreciate so much of what y'all do because you are certainly not doing it for the money. So that these <laughs> no. children have a safe place to land. What do you want biological parents to know about parent attorneys? We are there for them. We we are not, you know, being paid by anyone else. I mean, we're not in in a conspiracy with, with anybody else against them. We are there for them. And we will we'll do the best that we can. And if if you are going to if you're gonna have a parent attorney 
appointed to you, you're going to know they're familiar with the system because dependency court is a very specialized court system. So you know that that attorney is familiar with the judges, what's going on, and the different stakeholders in the case usually, and they're going to provide good representation to the parents. And if they go out and hire a private attorney, please hire an attorney who has a lot of experience in dependency court because they are just like fish out of water or a deer in headlights. What do you want the public to know about parent attorneys independency? That we are paid very little. We're very dedicated to our, to our job. What keeps you from being burnt out? Yes, I, I need respite. I try not to answer uh, my phone or take messages over the weekends if I don't have to. Um, and I think we all need another life um, to do something in addition. And mine is, well, my, my children are basically grown now. I also work antique shows, antique dolls. I'm, in, I'm involved in um, doll clubs in the area. I've been very involved, do all the local shows, even the region, even at the national shows. Oh, wow. And do that research and history. And that's my respite. That's really that's, fun. That's my fun little side business. What is that? Is it Antique Roadshow? Is that the sh- show on TV? Is that yes. what it's called? Yes. Do you like that? Yes, I love it. I've yeah. seen that. And that's been like super interesting. Like just learning about the history of stuff sometimes. Yes. I find very interesting. That's cool. Yeah. All of us who interact with these kids and these parents experience secondary trauma. Right. When you hear their stories, just by knowing some of the stuff that's going on, you're going to receive some of that trauma into your heart as well. Um, what are the things that you do when you start feeling, you know, that, that the secondary trauma is getting to you? I will take a break from it, um, go to an antique mall, maybe do some shopping for my side business. Um, things like that, and just really appreciate uh, my home life or what it is. I think a lot of us as parent attorneys are like, you know, we just don't know how, you know, we think all of our lives are dysfunctional, but but how much just to be appreciative and have gratitude of what our families have given us and the opportunities that we've had. So many situations could put us on the other side of the table in the courtroom where we were born into a certain family, we experienced certain trauma, made bad choices in at a time where our brains weren't fully developed to make certain choices just because you know, there's a parent that's a parent and I'm the foster parent. Like I could very easily be in that position had I lived a different life. And uh, it's important to remember that I think sometimes and, and just be thankful that that wasn't our experience and that's not our life right now and try and help them that that isn't their experience in the future. What, what do you think you're the biggest struggles you face in, in, in this child welfare world? You touched on it. You need to keep a balance in your life. It's very easy to get burnt, to get burned out, to find that balance um, in doing a good, effective job for your client um, and being able to uh, de-stress and have time for yourself as well. Um, When you're a young attorney, it's very interesting. You spend exorbitant amounts of time and it may not be real effective time. In working on your cases, as you get to be an older attorney, as you practice more years, you know how to, with less time, more effectively present the motions, present the petitions, present the arguments to the court um, more effectively and with, with less time. 
So involved and less, maybe less stress, more pinpointed effective representation as you get older. What do you think the community can do to prevent kids from coming into care or prevent as many kids coming into care? Just to volunteer for charities or other organizations to try to get these people, the community service, um, things that they need um, before the kids get removed and get into care. And what's um, so whatever they can do, I know the departments are really good about, you know, trying to not remove the children, keeping them in care with the safety plan and making the referrals for the community mm-hmm. service providers. But anyway, you can affect people that are parents with small children that are susceptible to removal or right on the brink of it mm-hmm. is a blessing. If you can work for like there are many Catholic ch- charities around in the Tampa Bay area that have been able to provide, you know, housing or housing assistance for them, uh, job assistance. And, and you know, we, we talk about it all the time in dependency court. This, it is the affordable housing crisis in the Tampa Bay area is a struggle. And some of the, the judges are really considering that, how hard it is, especially during COVID. Mm-hmm. I mean, all the caseworkers sometimes can give them is, you know, referral for public um, assistance, housing, for public housing or Section 8, and that's about it. And sometimes those wait lists are or the wait list really years, long. and they're like, I'm not going to do this. How am I, like, I'm supposed to have stable housing for my kid, and I need to accomplish that within a year, I mean, supposedly. Right. <laughs> but, you know, the wait list is a year and a half to get a house, and I've got to establish a house and continue. So um, it's, it's just a very big challenge to all of us, and especially a living wage, too. And so, you know, thank goodness the judges are considering those factors. That's it's just a that's good. What are your personal goals to make change in the community? Oh, I think, I guess, number one, as a parent attorney, um, for children to um, achieve permanency back with their parents and or extended family, if possible. Um, And then as an attorney ad litem, um, to make sure all these children, their voices are heard on their express wishes, what they specifically want. And um, that they receive uh, permanency and all the public and all the uh, community service um, benefits that they're entitled to. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm totally honored to do this and I appreciate y'all's time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe and follow us on social. We hope that you join us again next time and keep on fostering the future.